Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 109. I am so thrilled to welcome Joel Salatin, one of the greatest uh, farm educators of our time, I believe, uh, and many would agree who have seen him present in seminars or read one of his books or uh, heard him speak. So um, I think what's amazing about Joel is uh, what he calls himself. He calls himself a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer. What I think that basically translates to (laughs) is, uh, is him being... Uh, staunchly pro-planet and environment, um, a master at not only uh, creating lush pasture himself but then going on to teach farmers all around the world to do that without requiring uh, synthetic fertilisers, pesticides or herbicides to successfully farm. And the little word capitalist in there is that he is passionate about small and medium hold and big farmers actually earning a decent wage. So many of our farmers struggle. We see it all the time, um, whether it be because of drought or whether it be because of the supermarkets cutting the supermarkets cutting them out on their pricing. There are so many challenges that the modern farmer experiences. And Joel is passionate about helping people have healthy businesses as well. So there are so many aspects to uh, the work he does in the world. Um, Many know him as the most famous farmer in the world, the high priest of pasture, and uh, the most eclectic thinker from Virginia since Thomas Jefferson. Um, And then there are people who don't like him, of course, and they call him a bioterrorist, typhoid Mary, charlatan and a starvation advocate. So if that doesn't intrigue you a little bit about today's guest, if you haven't heard of Joel Salatin before, then I'm pretty sure your your, um, curiosity has just been piqued. And... um, and he is one of the greatest inspirations I've come across in uh, helping show the world that agriculture does not need to be um, denigrative to the land, that we can leave the land in better shape than we find it, and that we can do that farming both animals and plants. And that's uh, quite a controversial idea in many circles. I, I get that. But just have a listen to Joel uh, explain it for himself and um and I think you'll you'll start to understand why uh, why that might work. So um, he uh, yeah I, I'm I'm going to launch uh, into the show really quickly this week because I, I just think it's such a special conversation, and I really felt like it was a great conversation. Um, often when you're interviewing really huge figures from around the world, as I get the chance to do every week, um, sometimes I feel like I'm interviewing and I I have to be really on game and I have to make sure I bring up all the good points that they want me to raise, um, so that we bring out the best of their work. But with Joel, I honestly felt like, and I did actually have a cup of tea, but I honestly felt like, um, I was chatting to one of my most inspiring friends uh, and trying to learn as much from them as I could. Uh, and um, and hopefully that comes through in today's chat. I want to say thank you to everyone around the world who is logging onto their Amazon, jumping onto their Booktopia or Book Depository and leaving an online def- um, review of the Lotox Life, my book. I appreciate it so much to start seeing some of these reviews come through because it helps people who have never heard of Lotox Life or Alex Stewart before 
see that, oh, look, there's a few five-star reviews. That might actually be a good one. And they don't just talk about plastic, but they talk about the whole lot. Um, Remember, I wrote this book for my 15 years ago me. If I had wandered into a bookshop as I was back then, very curious about how to fix the food I was eating and then a bit later how to sort out my personal care cleaning home and mind, um, I, I would have been so grateful had I found a book like that 15 years ago. And so I wrote it for that person. Um, and for the people who kind of want to feel validated by making the choices that we make as low-tox peeps. So thank you so much for leaving your online reviews. I really, really appreciate it. It's awesome. And it's beautiful to read how it's impacted you and which bits you like the best as well um, with some of those more detailed reviews that are coming in. So I just want to remind you that this is the second and final week that ReSparkle Cleaning Products is uh, sponsoring the podcast. Uh, So thank you very much to them because it helps us cover the costs of putting it on. And it always means we get a little deal. I feel like a bit of an Oprah being able to pass on all these amazing offers to you guys. So this offer is signing up to resparkle.com.au and um, signing up to their rewards program. And by doing so, you'll get $10 immediately towards your first order. And all the details are in the show notes um, in terms of links and codes and anything you might need. And they've got a super cool competition going with a bit of a before and after um, oven and barbecue challenge where the winner winners are going to get all sorts of things, cleaning products, a, a someone to come in and clean their oven. Um, and everyone can um, also win a $50 ReSparkle voucher if they submit their review. So a whole bunch of cool things going on. Please head to the show notes and make the most of that $10 credit because, you know, life's expensive and who doesn't want something for free? And if you can, you know, get a few cleaning products to try from them, from their beautiful new rebrand and relaunch, uh, then $10 goes a long way. So enjoy that and uh, enjoy this chat with Joel Salatin. I hope you do as much as I did. I'm still on a high from it a couple of weeks later. Hey, Joel, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. I hope you are, Alex. I really am, and I feel very, very lucky to take a little time out of your precious and very busy life um, and uh, and and share with our amazing Lotox listeners a little bit about your journey, your thoughts, and how you help people understand just how magical regenerative farming is. And so I guess um, I, before we kick in, I would love to just share with people a little bit more about your story who, for some reason, may be under a rock and haven't heard of your work before. Were you born and bred a farmer, and did you always farm the way you do now? Um, yes, to both questions, actually. I'm, I'm second generation here on our farm in uh, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley, and uh, uh, I was raised here. We came here when I was four years old, and so I'm second generation here on this property, and um, my, my dad was, um, you know, we, we say he was, he was organic before the word was invented, and um, he was a bit of a genius and, uh, you know, saw this whole chemical kind of this, uh, this treadmill of, of chemical. He talked, talked, he viewed it as a drug addiction and, uh, he saw the, the fallacy of that very early on in the, you know, in the late fifties, early sixties. And, um, and so, you know, I don't have a conversion experience. I, I grew up weird, you know, from day one. Mm. 
<laughs> um, weird is a funny word, isn't it? And um, and hopefully soon you're going to be the normal one, right? <laughs> yes, maybe maybe so. Yeah, I always say in the work that I do, I, I teach, I run a lot of e-courses and one of them is helping people reduce environmental toxins in their day-to-day. And I'm like, basically my goal here, guys, is for us to be enough hippie crackpots that we actually become the normal thing instead of crazy people. And, um, and you know, I'm not going to stop till that's done. Yes. Well, that's a, that's a noble, a noble and a sacred goal. <laughs> and, uh, we, we view the same thing. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I call myself a lunatic farmer because everything we do is lunacy according to the orthodoxy. Yeah. But, uh, what, what you find, you know, in, in movements, if you study historically historical movements, what happens is that those those lunatic fringes, uh, when the movement finally reaches that hundredth monkey, <laughs> yeah, the tipping then, point, right? Then su- mm. suddenly, yeah, suddenly those uh, those lunatic fringes are the ones that are in the front. Mm, exactly. So yeah, just keep on keeping on. Um, and for people yeah. who don't really understand um, regenerative farming, um, because a lot of people think the only answer is to literally stop farming animals and stop eating meat for example that's very popular in its thinking at the moment and while I don't definitely don't want to go down any controversial should we shouldn't we eat meat kind of um, conversations what I do want to talk about is the um, unequivocal evidence that you bring on your tours in showing how um, how farming synergistically can really help rehabilitate land in a way in uh, a way and a speed that um, I haven't been able to find any other examples where animals aren't involved. So could you share with me how you've you've come to understand and and teach regenerative principles? I mean, I, that's probably like a three-hour yeah. lecture in itself, but like give us the crib <laughs> notes. Sure. Well, well, it is, and uh, and I can do it pretty quickly. I <laughs> I think uh, I would like to I would like to just say as a context that we have always essentially looked at at the abundance of natural ecosystems i mean you know australia is a, a perfect example the mm. the uh you know in in 1820 australia um averaged 20 percent organic matter today it averages you know one percent um in you know in 1800 the rivers were all you know above the above the the terrain Today they're incised, you know, down below. Uh, you know, the the. I mean, when I last time I was in uh, South Australia, up above uh, Adelaide, there, um, I, the, the 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 land there that was sold was sold based on the depth to the aquifer, and the closer the aquifer was, you know, the the more expensive the land was, and um, and you know, the, the the deeds show that in eight, the eighteen fifties, eighteen forties. You know that land was was um, literally two meters, most of it, two meters from the aquifer. Wow! And uh, that that aquifer is now gone. And then they went into the second one and the third one, and now they're into you know averaging like you know a hundred meters, and those aquifers are drying up. So so we, when we study uh, natural ecosystems, we see um, uh, we see synergistic abundance, and so. Um, so we have always looked at these systems as well. What can we learn about the template, the patterns of abundance, of ecological abundance, 
and, and then apply them on a commercial domestic you know farm. And there there really um, aren't very many of these. I'll just give you a couple just to to illustrate. Yeah, of course. One is one is there is no animalless ecosystem. There's no ecosystem with no animals. And so animals fill a very uh, incredibly functional role in nature. They they prune, they move fertility around. I mean, it's the only way fertility can move from lowlands to highlands against gravity. Uh, and when you say they move the fertility around, what kind of fertility are we talking about? Well, what we're talking about is in the, in the normal gravitational movement of biomass, minerals, and all that. Gotcha. Uh, it, it moves from from hilltops down to fertile valleys, mm-hmm. and so. The only way to defy gravity and move the fertile valley, uh, whatever, mother, mother load of fertility back up to the hillsides and the hilltops is with animals. Um, and, and so animals would eat in the valleys and then they would go to the top of the hills and, uh, you know, where it was a little cooler, a little breezier and there they would, uh, uh, rest and defecate and urinate and, this this moved the this moved the valley fertility and, and created a, an egalitarian landscape of fertility, um, and and so so there is no animalist ecosystem. And then and then so if you posit well we've got to have animals to have a functional ecosystem. Well, the next thing we notice about animals is they move. They don't they don't stay in the same place. They don't stay in the same field. They don't stay in the same uh, uh, region. They they move around. They tend to be kind of mobbed up for predator protection, and and they prune. They're mowing. They're mowing strategically in a kind of a migratory, uh, a migratory choreography. What moves them is everything from you know flies to predators to uh, rains to fire to you know all sorts of things. And so so the moving, mobbing, mowing are kind of three M's of of, of animal template. That then we take technology and say, how do we duplicate that on a domestic uh, scale? And so we use uh, electric fencing that mm-hmm. gives us mobile control. We use uh, you know water pipe that gives us mobile water, so they don't have to just they don't always have to go to a creek to drink. And we use mobile shelters uh, so that so that they can be sheltered up anywhere not just under it where there's a patch of trees or something and um and and so we're you know that's that's one of the the duplication templates um you know another template that we notice is that nature is fundamentally based on perennials not annuals uh annuals are are plants that you have to that make a seed every year you have to plant them every year perennials uh you don't have to plant every year they keep they keep coming back and so the, the energy cycle, the energy cycle of an annual is primarily extractive because they're drawing from the soil and putting all the energy in a, in a big fat seed, barley, wheat, corn, oats, all right? Mm. Um, and, and, and whereas a perennial makes a very, very small seed and they put all their energy in a great big root mass down under the soil, which is like a big uh, reservoir bank account. So that if a fire comes or a flood comes or or the the the, the wombat comes or the kangaroo <laughs> comes, um, the 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 plant has all this wonderful energy reserves in the soil to to uh, send forth new shoots. That is why all the the deep soils on the planet, the best soils, 
are under uh, are under prairies, under perennial plants, not not annuals. And nature doesn't till. Uh, the only place there is uh, there are, are annuals in nature are under cataclysmic things like flooding, a volcano, uh, you know, some some cataclysmic shift, of, of, uh, you know, in a in a short term land healing process just to get something on quickly. But the perennials are the are the basis. Um, another principle is that that uh, that fertility in the soils, uh, regenerative soil, occurs from carbon in situ. It doesn't come from bags of of petroleum based 10 10 10 or 5 10 20 <laughs> really? or whatever it, no, no, it, it 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 comes it comes from carbon generated on site or proximate in nature carbon doesn't move very far mm-hmm. uh you know a leaf blows a you know a uh, a kangaroo eats eats a leaf one place and then goes and poops it out someplace else but it's not not that far away you know it's not it's yeah. not across the continent it's it's fairly close and and a bird you know a bird will eat a seed here but but only as far as it can fly and perch and then poop you know does it does it and and in case your listeners are wondering you know why i'm heading toward poop and <laughs> all of my conversations end up about poop i mean the whole joel the whole you're, planet, you're not alone there <laughs> we have a lot of conversations <laughs> about poop too <laughs> yeah. well that's for sure and, and and so so i hope you know as you just think about these very simple these simple patterns that have stood the test of eons. Animals move. Animals are present. Animals move. Um, they, the, they're, they're, the, uh, the, the plant community is, is primarily perennial, not very many annuals. And fertility is built from on-site, on-location carbon. You know, those are just, they're very simple and yet they're extremely profound when you think about modern industrial orthodox farming, which assumes the ecosystem does not need animals. We'll, 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 we'll lock the animals up in a factory farm somewhere and deny the landscape the benefit of all these animals. Uh, if we do have animals, we're not moving them around very much. They're just they're just in a in a given field, and 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 they're not you know rotated every day to a new you know to a new location. Mm. Um, and and so if you and then and then um, you know perennials. Well, who wants perennials? No, we want annuals. Let's grow wheat, barley, corn, soybeans, you know whatever, cotton, uh, sugar cane. You know we're gonna grow we're gonna grow annuals. And so all the farm programs, policy, uh, the commodity programs, crop insurance, subsidies, you know, the whole system is, is, is the holy grail is, uh, is the annual, not the perennial. Wow, yeah. And, uh, and, and then, and then carbon, uh, the, the, the number one way to eliminate, to burn out carbon, to eliminate carbon from the soil is to plow it, to till it. And so not only do we oxidize out the carbon with our tillage to grow our annuals mm. to feed animals that aren't on that aren't on site. Yeah. But but then we try we try to substitute carbon with with chemical based petroleum based uh, uh, basically a, 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 an, an intravenous tube uh, an IV for the soil 
And yeah, you can keep it alive for a while, but you don't really give life. Uh, you know, an IV, an IV for a person. I mean, yes, it can, it can, it can keep you alive for a while, but there's no, there's no real. Yeah, you got to have a long game. Quality of life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who wants to walk around with an IV all day, mm. every day? Uh, you know, a extended period of time. So, so I hope you can appreciate how how these very very simple, simple, uh, you know just concepts of, of just a simple phrase like animals move carbon in situ perennials you know that's not very many words but they are profound and they are profoundly opposite the trajectory of modern industrial conventional uh, agriculture mm. and you know like it just seems crazy that one would know this and that many would have known this, like um, your parents, for example, right. uh, and yet the the system moved like literally in the opposite direction. Is that really just one, another example of how vested interests have um, have corrupted our world? Uh, well, you know, I, I'm I'm not a conspiracist. I I, I I tend I tend to think that people end up where they are primarily due to just expediency. Okay. It's just easier. Like instant uh, gratification. I mean, let's, 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 let's take an example. I mean, a, a great example is, you know, uh, Justice, Justice von Liebig, the, the Austrian uh, physicist who, who used vacuum tubes to, he was a Nobel Prize winner, uh, or, you know, he, he uh, was world famous, for explaining to the world that all all plants and animals are simply reconfigurations of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. Now he was wrong. Uh, those are the macronutrients, but as we know now, there are a lot of micronutrients. You know, boron, molybdenum, cobalt, you know, copper, all sorts of cool mm. other things that he didn't he didn't recognize. But but the poor man, <laughs> you know, uh, Justice von Liebig. I mean, his heart was sincere. He was looking for an answer to to the fertility question. This was, you know, this was the early 1800s, and uh, and 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 population was increasing. Cities were getting bigger, and um, and he was desperate. I mean, uh, uh, deserts were expanding, and he was he was desperate for some kind of an answer to the fertility issue. Mm. And so he, you know, he he proposed this this. Uh, what we now, he's the father of chemical agriculture, and said, you know, all life is just a reconfiguration of, of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, right. and launched the whole chemical agriculture thing. He meant, so like so many things, he meant well, and he was simply looking for, you know, for, for a, an expedient answer to a, to a problem. And, 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 the, and the problem was that he was not, A, he was not looking at, how does nature do this? B, he was not looking at the whole at the whole system. He was not looking at it holistically. Mm. And so, so, so what happened was, um, yeah, you you can get you can get bushels, you can get uh, production if you dump on chemical NPK. And by World War One, um, you know, which was roughly you know fifty years after. Von Liebig uh, um, introduced this concept to the world, and the world embraced it because it, it wanted simplicity. It doesn't like complex. People don't like complexity. They like simplicity. Hmm. So if we can just 
boil life down to a reconfiguration of NPK, hey, I like the simple, you know, it's easy. Yeah. And and so then we had World War One, we had World War Two, which all which um, made uh, ammunition bombs, and bombs were made out of N, P, and K. Oh. And so the war the war effort gave uh, a what a head start, a concessionary fast track yeah. to the mining, the configuration, the laboratory development, the distribution, the bagging, and the marketing of chemical NPK. Mm-hmm. So that post World War II, by the you know by the mid 1940s, the um, the size of you know Dupont and 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 these um, large uh, NPK you know chemical fertilizer ammun- slash ammunition bomb making uh, enterprises were worldwide and were huge, mm. and 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 farmers at that time. Um, you know, some said, whoa, 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 we, we don't want to do that stuff. We want to go to carbon. Uh, you know, Sir Albert Howard, Sir Albert Howard, the, the Britisher who worked for his whole career from 1920 to 1940 in Indore, uh, India, uh, wrote an agricultural testament, which essentially brought to the world um, the scientific uh, aerobic composting in 1943, right in the middle of World War II. And so, so you have these two threads coming to the world. You have you have the, the chemical approach, the mechanical approach to life, and you have this this fundamentally you know biological organic approach to life through compost. But the problem was, like so many things in innovation, um, one side had a real head start of infrastructure to be able to to metabolize the mm, idea to roll it out. And, and yeah. so, yeah, so the chemical approach had this huge, it was like there was a race, you know. Uh, the starting gun went off in 1945, and and dear old compost had a, a, a two-lap... Um, uh, lag. You know, lag, yes, yes, beca- because the chemical had all this uh, war spending for ammunition and bombs and things. As Vandana Shiva says, we're still wearing World War II bombs on our hips. Yeah. And... With, with chemical uh, fertility, and and the problem was that composting, large scale composting or efficient efficient expedient composting, was not really possible until the late fifties and early sixties when we finally got tractors with front end loaders, we got uh, wood chippers, um, we got uh, uh, water pipe, uh, cheap concrete so that you could pour a slab and compost on it. I mean, there, there were numerous uh, a chainsaw, so that we could so that we could get biomass, you know, chipped up efficiently. I mean, the chainsaw didn't, as we know it, the chainsaw didn't really become a uh, whatever a, a, the tool that we know it of today until the mid 1950s. And so, so there there were several key components to making biomass carbon a, a carbon economy on the farm and in the soil to actually make it viable. Well, by the mid-60s, when it was indeed viable, um, by that time the chemical approach dominated our universities, it dominated our, our, our agriculture policy, legislation, you know, um, the, the thinking of people on it. The, fa- the fact is that if we had had a Manhattan Project Mm-hmm. For compost, 
not only not only would we have fed the world, we would have done it without three-legged salamanders, infertile frogs, and a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> that is, that's a truth bomb right there. That is, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. So, so, so the question, you know, so, so I, I don't see it as a conspiracy. I see it as a lot of people trying to solve a problem mm-hmm. from from different paradigms, different, you yeah. know. Um, Different worldviews, different mindsets, and and one was trying to solve it as a mechanical problem, and one was trying to solve it as a biological problem. And those those two um, uh, worldviews led the two different groups to completely opposing uh, discoveries. Both were well intentioned. Neither was evil, but one one appreciates and honors and works with ecology the other one tends to whatever dishonor disregard it or override the beautiful symmetries and synergies that we see in in multi-speciated highly relational complex uh ecological systems Mm. wow so beautifully explained and so i mean so logical in a world that um (laughs) <laughs> a world that tries to sensationalize everything <laughs> as well. Like if you just look really calmly at the history lines, you can completely understand mm-hmm. how we got to where we are today. Um, and then, of yes. course, to keep feeding that system, that's where vested interests do start to come in as you look into the 70s and 80s because oh, it's, it's almost yes. like it's too big to fail now, right? Like, Yes, yes, hmm. well said. And, and so, so what happens? Uh, you know, with innovation like this, if you study innovation, what, what happened, what happened, what, where we are now is that, that, that mechanical approach, oh yes, I mean, the next step is genetically modified organisms, and then mm-hmm. the next step is nanotechnology, and we're all supposed to be really enthusiastic about, about now, uh, nanoparticles floating through the corpuscles of our, of our blood vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's that's going to be you know our answer to everything. Um, so so the 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 mechanical the mechanical approach toward life is still very much alive and well. But it is as as we see uh, as we see um, you know morbidity statistics and chronic illnesses rise. I mean, in the West, in the Western world, the you know the, the wealthy countries, we've pretty much you know, uh, I don't want to say conquered, but we don't have much infectious disease anymore. You know, uh, uh, smallpox, measles, brucellosis, polio, all those, you know, highly infectious diseases of, of 1900, um, uh, they're, they're, they're not a big problem. What we have done is we have so um, toxified our food system and our environmental system that we have exchanged those infectious diseases for chronic diseases. Mm. And so now the United States, which arguably has led the world in chemical agriculture, if you will, and junk food and, and, and a mechanical approach to life, we the United States now is the world leader. We're number one in chronic, uh, in, in morbidity figures from chronic things like heart disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, cancer, 
you know, there are a lot of places where a country wants to be number one in the world. You know, you <laughs> that is not one, one of them. <laughs> in, in, in the Olympics, you want to be number one in uh, soccer, right? Yeah. But you, yeah, you don't want to be number one in in chronic morbidity. No. And and so uh, so, you know, I I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to sit here and say, isn't it, isn't it, uh, whatever. Uh, the perfect fairness that the the nation that pushes the envelope hardest on disrespecting the intricacies and, and, and dynamism of life is also the country that is number one in chronic morbidity. And so so you know I tend I believe I believe that there there will be um, there will be a time when we start and, and maybe we're it could be that we're already here um, that the time comes when our our uh, our disrespect of of the intricacies of life finally outruns our cleverness at at at, at fooling at fooling life into thinking that it's all okay mm. from, you know, vaccines to nanotechnology to, you know, uh, whatever, for, you know, um, cry, um, um, cryogenics. I mm. mean, you know, name your, name your deal. Um, I, I, I think that the notion, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Saturday I did two interviews. Uh, one was with a Florida State University student. Another one was a, a group of faculty from a Christian, from a, 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 a Christian high school, actually a private school in Cincinnati, where I'm going to go speak in April. Mm-hmm. They were here to, to get some video teasers to publicize the event, uh, so they could get more people here. And it was interesting. Both of them asked a question that I have never been asked before. Oh wow! What was it? But but. Yeah, both of them were coming from an academic setting, very mm-hmm. academic setting. And the question was this, how do we get our STEM students, that's science, technology, engineering, and STEM, uh, and ma- mathematics, mm-hmm. um, how do we get our STEM students to care about farming? Mm. And, uh, and, and, and nobody's ever asked me that before. And, um, and it struck me that, you know, the world that you and I live in, I mean, sure, we, you know, we debate, we rub shoulders with people who don't agree with us for sure. But generally, we tend to run in our tribes, you know, and, and, and the people who come to see our farm, they're usually not enemies. They're, they're, they're cheerleaders, you know. Mm, yeah. They want to, they want to come and see this and they're all excited. They oh, want to drink the Kool Aid. Yeah. 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 Drink <laughs> the Kool Aid. Exactly. And, and it struck me with this, with, with two academic, institutions asking this same question on the same day it was like a two by four up against my head um and i realized wow this this techno worship world we live in is is really alive and well and and so my answer to both of them was that the only reason the only way stem the the science technology um, engineering and mathematics, the only way that those people can thrive in any civilization is if you have 
enough food production from healthy soil, water, and air so that it can sustain a civilization that has enough luxury, has enough leftovers to to sustain stem stem work. Otherwise, everybody's going to be out here in their little in their little uh, uh, patch trying to scratch out, eke out an existence. And and so, why should they care about farming? They should care about farming because farming is what enables them to practice STEM. Mm-hmm. And 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 so often these uh, you can you can even call it kind of the, the STEM cult, if you will. I, I call it this, you know, techno worship or techno cult. Yeah. Um, so often they're so drunk on hubris on human cleverness that they actually think that we can levitate ourselves away from our ecological umbilical in some Star Trek nirvana <laughs> where we all, you know, we all thrive on a, on a lab pill nutrition and we can, we can finally once and for all abdicate our responsibility and tie to something as mundane condescending as soil mm-hmm. yeah i often say and that's, my food... and that's a very yeah that's a very treacherous uh, path to be on it is and i often like think you know in my food workshops i talk about um uh that sort of time in the 50s 60s 70s especially as many many women moved to the workforce and no families had conversations about how we were going to divvy up the responsibilities on cooking dinner for the family all of a sudden with both both people working. Um, and that's when the yeah. food guys came in and went, don't worry, we'll take it off your hands, we got this, and, yeah. uh, and took yeah. over. Yeah. And the messaging, yeah. if you look at the advertising, it really is when we start to belittle the act of cooking and produce, um, produce procurement, because it is beneath yeah. us. And I feel like yeah. we've literally had that solid, solid message for 40, 50 years now, and we have to undo yeah. it. And cooking is a massive yeah. privilege. Choosing the perfect ripe tomato at the farmer's market is a beautiful act. And, uh, and we just need to work on the reframe to, to really reconnect to the magic of what we get to do every day um, to feed our families. I think that's often yeah. where it well, starts for the everyday person, right? Oh, I, I couldn't, all I can do is say amen to everything that you just said, <laughs> because, because, um, we, you, you cannot, in any sector of a civilization, of a culture, you cannot have integrity, uh, and, and integrity can mean, you know, I, I mean it in its full nuanced idea, integrity top to bottom, side to side, people, the whole thing. Mm. You cannot have integrity in a sector when nobody knows about that sector or participates in it. I mean, if, if, if there's a, if there's it's kind a game, of like politics. Yeah, everyone yeah, has to participate right. for if, it to if, work. If, if yeah. nobody, if nobody, yeah, right. If nobody participates, there's no accountability. Mm. If there's no accountability, there's no integrity. And so the fact that we have. Um, have so profoundly abdicated our, our our participatory role in the food system 
is 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 the direct whatever um, you know cause of the fact that we have such a degraded food system, and we let we let farming, we let agriculture, we let land stewardship get by with things that if you scratched your head and thought for a moment, you'd say, you know what, you know that. That's not what I. That's that's not what I should be fueling my body with. Mm. But again, it's not evil intent. It's just, well, it's just it's just easy. It's easy to pick up the pop tart. It's easy to pick <laughs> up the, you know, the spam or whatever it is, and 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 not think. Mm. And um, you know, on our farm, our our little mantra on our uh, on our you know uh, cooler bags and things is. Um, healing the land one bite at a time. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people to understand that what goes on your on your plate is ultimately creating the landscape your grandchildren will inherit. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't seem like a big thing. I mean, okay, I'm just eating some food here. Okay? Mm. But just eating some food here, the, the cumulative effect of all of us just eating some food here is what actually determines how the landscape will be stewarded. It's, it's a profound thought. It is a profound thought, and it's a powerful one. To, it's almost like we all need to meditate on it before we go shopping, you know, just like spend <laughs> yeah. a couple of minutes thinking, I really play yeah. a massive role in this because if you harness that power that we all have, then you shop differently. You, I mean, I could not un undo what I had done in the past once I started to learn about our food system in my late 20s but I could sure as heck change the future with what I put in my basket and I really believed it and so many of us do now and yeah. it's growing every day which is so exciting. Oh, ab- yeah. Absolutely mm. I was I, I was uh, running an errand to town today had the radio on and I, I, I heard an advertisement for some uh, uh, some children's program and the prize is going to be a year of um, of uh, free um, um, fruit was it um, Fruit Loops? Oh yeah, fruit gosh, loops. right. Uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Wrong thing. Lucky Charms. Lucky oh Charms. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, which is arguably even worse than Fruit Loops. <laughs> and, and I I had this moment in the I was in my little pickup truck, and I had this moment uh, uh, to think. You know, my kids, I, we have two, uh, Daniel's 37 and Rachel's 32, and neither one has ever, ever eaten a Lucky Charm in their life. Yeah. Nice. And, nice and, work uh, there, Mom and Pop. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and by the way, neither one of them's ever had a cavity either. Mm. And they're, you know, Daniel's almost 40. So, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's some cool stuff there. Uh, but but you know if the the idea the idea that we're all whatever victims of some advertising scheme some political scheme some corporate agribusiness you know big evil empire scheme um, you know nobody's holding a gun to your head saying you have to eat Lucky Charms nobody mm, yeah and and so uh, so I, I you know I tend to be you know kind of politically a little bit libertarian and I just I just am big on personal responsibility. And I think that it's very, it's actually very um, disempowering and abdicating of our own personal responsibility when we say, well, I can't. I'm, I'm taking the kids to rugby practice. Uh, I don't have time. We've got to stop at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
that that's crazy talk. Um, uh, of course, of course, you have time. In fact, um, I've kind of come up with an interesting little little uh, soundbite for people. Ask you know what are the what are the um, signs of a person that you know that, that gets it? What, what are you looking for? And, and my first one now is a person who eats leftovers. Mm, yeah. I mean, because, to, you know, we now live, you go to the supermarket, everything's in individual packages because we don't eat together as families anymore. We don't cook together. And so we, we basically get little, you know, uh, uh, single serving items that can be microwavable or grazable. And we simply graze through the day. Uh, when we want to go to the theater, we grab something at the theater and we go on. And so... To me, a person who consistently eats and enjoys leftovers, um, by definition, is a person who's actually cooking, preparing, and, and, and going through all that participatory uh, thought and activity process around food. What happens is when we, when we don't participate in preparing packaging, preserving, processing food, we've become ignorant about food. And what's happened now, and I'm sure you've seen it in the last, whatever, 20 years, is that that the average person now almost fears food. We're fearful. We, we, we actually fear food. Everything mm-hmm. from... Yeah. Um, uh, allergens to how do you fix it? How do you prepare it? Oh, is it, does it pathogenic? Oh, does it toxic? Ooh, is it sterile? Does it have Campylobacter on it? Does it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm, Listeria and, 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 and on and on. Yeah. 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 And, and people are literally, people are literally paranoid of, of food because we do fear what we don't know about. I mean, we have, we have customers that ask us, how do you, how do you thaw a chicken? I got a chicken from you. It's frozen. How do you thaw it? Mm-hmm. Um, just, just extremely basic. How do I make a? I got, I got ground beef from you. How to make a? How do I make a hamburger? Really? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I've been getting patties. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's <laughs> amazing. And and I yeah. think those yeah. of us who are. Um, you know, who like are the choir that got preached to and we're in this thing already, you know, you forget that the, that the majority of the world just started to buy the single-serve TV dinners and stopped teaching yep. their kids how to cook. Yep. And so, yes, we do have a really incapacitated group of adults right now who are then terrified of, hand, you know, like fussy eating and all these things that are happening right. in our families. And... um and there's no better example for me than the fact that my number one visited post on the website is how to make stocks and broths. Um, because for oh. me, it literally is just putting all your leftover ends of carrots, a few celery leaves, little, you know, just whatever you got lying around, the onion top and tails from the month that just go in the freezer in the meantime, shove them in a pot, don't have to measure, cover it all up with uh, water and whatever meat bones you might be using if you're doing an um, animal-based stock, and voila, a couple of hours later, you are done. But people are desperate to try and understand it technically. What what do you mean I can just do that? Like how many onions? And 
People just, you totally hit the nail on the head with the fear factor. Like, I'm not going to do this right. And that's really sad. Well, you know, one of the reasons, um, and I haven't heard this anyplace else, but I'll just, I'll just share this with you, see what you think. Mm. I, I think that as a culture, as a, as a very sophisticated uh, culture, we have become um, a culture of technicians. Yeah. You know, computers and, and everything, and, and, and the, the sophistication of, of, you know, our apparatus, our, our kitchen gizmos, our appliances, of the computers. And, and, and the thing about, the thing about sophisticated electronics and, and equipment like this is that you have to do the same procedure every time or it doesn't work. You know, if you don't, if you don't turn the key to the right, the car doesn't start. Mm. If you don't punch the sequence of numbers on your laptop, it, it doesn't it doesn't do what you and, and you have to and you have to punch that sequence of numbers or, or letters or whatever you're going to do the code you have to punch that code the same time every time if you want your inbox you punch a certain thing if you want an outbox or sent <laughs> I mean I'm doing email but you see what I'm saying <laughs> yeah yeah, and, yeah. And, and so and so we we have become I, I really believe that as a techno gadgetry sophisticated culture here in in the West you know not necessarily every place in the world. But certainly uh, here in, in the in the Western sophisticated cultures, we we have actually programmed ourselves into such narrow narrow protocols for everything that we do. You put the you put the clothes in. You push the you know you turn the timer. You punch the number for hot cold water. I mean you have to do it the same way every time, and it has actually begun to affect our ability. To to take risks to mm. whatever you to know, be creative uh, um, to, to feel be, yes, to, be to lead exactly. with feel to, to, yeah yes yes to, to to go to go into unfamiliar unfamiliar waters oh no you know what's the procedure here where where's the <laughs> where's the uh, SOP manual yeah. you know and 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 I think that a that as we become a culture of technicians. Um, we lose the spontaneity of our prophets and poets. Mm-hmm. That and, is, and, yeah. and are there, and are therefore more fearful of embarking on new places. I think that's one reason why we're now in the era of, of coaches. Mm. My oh, goodness. Have you ever, have you ever yeah. heard of, there's, there's marriage coaches, investment coaches, diet coaches, hypnosis coaches, yeah. uh, wellness coaches. Every, every, everybody's got a personal coach for about five things. Mm. Why? Because because we don't we don't have the manual you know we don't have the technician's manual in front of us mm. and so everybody wants to, everybody wants the personal coach that is um that is absolutely true I see I mean we see it everywhere I mean you just need to look down a Facebook feed and see you know someone wants to coach you in this or that or and I believe you know it's it's a it's a chicken or the egg thing right because. Because yes. we've got here, we kind of need the coaches to help us break down some yes. of the fears that we have. So, sure. because, I mean, you know, I, I, I teach people how to teach their kids how to eat real food. You know, that's one of the things I do. Yeah. And it, you would think yes. that that yes. would be crazy that that would be required. But unfortunately, it really is. And, you know, it changes yes. people's lives and it gives them back their sense of, I can actually trust my instincts here in this situation. And... um Lead with the heart, some healthy boundaries, lots of love, and a big variety yeah. of food in the middle of the table, and all the kids kind of just start to to eat again. And um, yeah, it's really it, there's there's a 
yeah, it's kind of sad that we got there, but I kind of believe that we also need to to use those people who are talented at breaking down those fears um, to kind of move us back towards where we need to go. Yes, and and I also think it's important to to be gentle on the on the judgmentalism. I mean, mm. look, all of us started somewhere, exactly, and yeah. And nobody, um, I, I conclude many of my presentations with a little ditty that, um, you know, we've all heard probably in our families, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Mm. And I explain to people that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, truth is, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly first. Yes, learning from mistakes. We don't do anything. Yeah. yeah, we don't do anything well first. I mean, we don't walk well, we don't talk well, we don't. Well, I guess we poop well, but we don't know where to put it. Yeah. I mean, all these all these things are, are skills that we learn, and and so again, this well, what if you know, what if the the cake falls? What if the you know the bread doesn't do well? What if it tastes like bricks or whatever? Well, you know, uh, uh, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly first, and and you can't and you can't Google experience, mm. so. Uh, mastery requires repetition. And, um, I mean, we joke here, I mean, I can teach anybody how to eviscerate a chicken in, you know, 10 minutes, but I can't teach you how to be good at it until you've done it on a hot day, a cold day, an old bird, a young bird, a, a feathered, you know, a, a female and a male and a, you know, uh, it, it, when, when you do the, Michael Jordan, the basketball icon used to say in his, his biography, he said that every every basket that I make on the court is represented by ten thousand practice shots that I've made mm. off of, you know out, outside the game. Yeah. And so, um, so just like you know, name your skill. Are you skilled at IT work? Are you skilled at help desk work? Are you skilled at Uber driving? Are you you know name anything? You know, investment banking. Are you skilled at mining? Are you skilled at designing plans? All right, all of those things. The reason you're skilled is because you started in one day, and you got better and better and better. And and this whole food thing and awareness of what 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 you should put in your body and what you don't um, or shouldn't. All of that. Is a, is a skill just like any other skill you have, and you don't get it in a day, but you start where you are. You start with one step, and you get a, a prototype of success that snowballs, and you you get a bigger snowball, a bigger snowball, and in five years you look back and you say, "Ha, huh, my goodness, I was afraid to boil an egg five years ago." Yeah, yeah. And today, today I'm making um, you know creme brulee. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's the way life is. That's it is. the way life is. It is. Jump in and join the game. You know, come down off the bleachers. The game is fun. Yeah, exactly. And um, I still remember thinking that um, t- roasting chickens was something only Char Grilled Charlies could miraculously do, <laughs> and that I would never ever possibly understand how that would happen. Um, and now I teach people how to do that and it's crazy, you know, so I, I sure. love, I love that idea that you just got to start with something and, um, and yeah. pretty soon all those little things add up to good things. Right. And we have, we have such wonderful infrastructure today. I mean, from, from time bake to, to, um, you know, crock pots, Instapots, 
um, bread makers, ice cream makers. I mean, when 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 we say, I mean, people ask me, you know, what what? All right, so you, if you if you could tell one thing to the average urbanite, you know, what it would be, I say, and my answer is always, get in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. And but but you know, get in your kitchen doesn't mean getting up at four and going to get kindling to start the wood stove. And going to the you know spring with a wooden bucket and fetching water, so yeah, it, that's not what getting in your kitchen means. And, and a lot of people they they take it as some sort of a sexist or condescending or something. No, no, no. It it just means it just means start. It comes down all the bleachers and and participate and play mm. in the food game. Yeah. Um. You know. It. it I mean, in America, I I I. I you know, joke with people. I say, look, you know, if if the average American knew as much about what they were eating for dinner as they did the Kardashians, mm. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> we'd be a different, we'd be a different culture. I was I was speaking at a at a real uh, college prep high school, real elite high school in Atlanta, private high school in Atlanta, doing a, a kind of a three day sustainability thing for all the grades. Lots of fun, and I had this had two hundred middle school students in an assembly, and I. I decided to do an experiment. I said, I said, I asked them a question. I said, um, can any, who can tell me three vegetables that, that you have to plant after frost is gone? If, if, if they get frosted in the garden, these vegetables will die. Mm-hmm. The whole 200 kids, 200 kids are sitting there and they're, they're totally quiet, totally mm-hmm. silent. They just look at me like I'm from Pluto. Mm-hmm. Finally, one little girl up near the front, and she timidly raises her hands and, and, and she said, she said, peppers. I said, good, that, that's good. Yeah, peppers. Yeah, they're, they're real, uh, susceptible to frost. Um, who else, you know, and finally, you know, after kind of drawing it out, I got, you know, I think I got corn and then I got, uh, um, I don't know, squash or something. Okay. So we mm-hmm. got three. I said, well, okay, maybe that was too hard. Maybe I need to go the other way. Can you give me three vegetables that you can plant even, even before frost? You know, that if, if it frosts, you're okay. Well, the th- same three kids timidly finally came forward with, you know, cabbage and carrots and beets or something. Mm-hmm. And and I probably they all have gardens, you know, in their in their families. And but but the whole thing was very, you know, it was it was awkward and tense. You could tell they weren't comfortable with 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 the questions and they didn't have answers and blah blah. blah. And I said, okay, now who can tell me the names of the three Kardashian sisters? <laughs> I mean, the place erupted. <laughs> yeah, I'm you. Ah! I mean, it, it took me ten minutes to get them settled down. Yeah, <laughs> and I. And, That's and awesome. So I, I, so I, when I got them settled down, I said, "Okay, so I got a question for you. In the, in the, in the, in the game of life, which piece of information is most important to know?" And they all sat there, and you could just see the light coming mm-hmm. on the epiphanies. They, 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 they got it. They understood. And and I, I think that that's the kind of epiphanal moment people people need to understand. You know, we're look, we're all busy. We got interests. We've got things to do. Things on our calendar. We got places to go. But boy, if we don't if we don't make room for knowing something. And, and touching viscerally, tactily something regarding 
next to sex, maybe, the most intimate thing we do, which is ingest stuff that becomes flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. If we, if we don't know anything about that, maybe we'd better think about cutting off some whatever, you know, some TV or some recreation or something to make time in our, in our day and our life so that we can actually enter this, this game that's for all the, you know, uh, for all the marbles, the game called What Should We Eat? Mm. So profound, so true. And that example of the kids is, it reminded me of a workshop. Do, do, have you met Costa Georgiatis on your travels to Australia by any chance? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, well, Costa, that, your laugh I, is all I need house. to hear there. Yeah. <laughs> So we were doing a presentation to a bunch of uni students uh, at one of our best universities um, about sustainability one day. And uh, I looked around the audience and a whole bunch of them were eating their McDonald's fries um, and had, you know, some kind of a soft drink or a bottle of water or whatever. And, uh, and so Costa goes around with a big bucket of beautiful soil with worms wriggling around in it. And these uni students were like, ew, you know, like, that's gross. And like, don't make me touch that. But he wanted everybody to touch it. And then I, I did a breakdown of what was in the average American, what was in the average McDonald's French fry and all the ingredients, where they came from, how the p- potatoes tend to grow and what kind of herbicides and pesticides are involved in that. And on and on we went. And then it was kind of like the question that came at the end. So what's really actually gross now? when after he'd talked about the magic of soil uh-huh. and it was just such a great you know it's exactly like that kardashian moment it's like people's lights that want to go on it's not like when you give them the information they still reject it because everybody is on board as soon as the penny drops in my experience yes yes i i i agree with you 100 percent. that's been that's been my experience as well and i think i think it's because in our culture we simply Again, it's it's not a conspiracy. It's not it's not anything. It's it's not evil. It's just that we have the luxury of being quote unquote well fed. The supermarket shelves are always full. Uh, we're not eking out an existence, and so we have the luxury. Guess what? To not think about food. Mm. And 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 throughout history, very few people throughout history have had the luxury of not having to think about food, not having to think of where their next meal came from. I mean, think of the, you know, think of the, think of the pioneers that came to America, came to Australia, came to New Zealand. Um, uh, you know, they, they actually had to think about, let's see now, you know, how are we going to make it through the off season? How, you know, what are we going to eat next week? Um, and, and most throughout history, most people groups, most tribes have to put a tremendous amount of thought into literally the day's sustenance. Mm. We live in a, you know, we in America and Australia, you know, Great Britain, Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, you know, we don't have to think about that because we have been able to, um, you know, to develop efficiencies mechanically and and, uh, productively, Mm. efficiencies. So that we don't we don't have to think about it, and 
we get to think about Hollywood celebrity and the Australian Open and, you know, other things. Mm. Oh, I do love the Australian Open. <laughs> I'm just going to come yeah, out and again, admit, again, massive I'm not, tennis I'm not fan. Suggesting that, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know your point. That we should have that. <laughs> but, but uh, I, I'm just saying that that at some point our our bandwidth our bandwidth has to include some of these basic foundational concepts mm. uh, in in our hurried, harried, frenzied. You know, live. Yeah, and it's um, it's it. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I've got to make time for twenty minutes meditation. And I love what Nigella Lawson says. Well, make a risotto, you know, stirring for twenty minutes, calmly and quietly and gently. <laughs> There's your meditation, and then you've made yourself dinner. And I love that. I think it's such a great. Um, you know, we keep trying to think we've got to add like more pockets of time in to feel less stressed. It's like, well, cooking with a glass of wine is a pretty stress-free exercise if uh-huh. you really want to think about it. And um, and then you, you're you less stressed and you got dinner on the table. So, again, yeah. it's, it's about the reframe sometimes and we're challenged um, always looking for the answer outside of what we're currently doing instead of what we could reshuffle and, and, and do more right. of. Mm. So, yeah. Um, I'm conscious of the time, Joel, and I, I, I do have a couple of questions I really want to ask you around um, helping more farmers understand why looking at the way um, you guys farm at Polyface and the educational work you guys do around the world. And, you know, you've got quite a few associates down here in, in Australia. I know so many farmers who've been to your seminars and, and tweaked things and changed the way they farm. But I have a question around, like, if you had a farmer in front of you today um, who was either a feedlot farmer or um, a smaller sort of um, plant-based farmer using a lot of sprays and or perhaps some um, genetically modified organisms, and they kind of see the benefit of removing all of those um, chemicals from their system, but they just don't know how to go from A to B. Like, I'm sure you've had this sort of person in your audience many a time before, but in sure. the in the sure. um, in the um, interest of not being able to hook people up to a, a seminar of yours right now coming up necessarily, um, what would you recommend? Where would you recommend they start? I mean, you have a, a bunch of books. Is is it there? Yeah. Or, you know, how do they kind <laughs> yeah, of connect well, even to other people who might be doing yeah. it a way they can learn from? Yeah, well, I, I think that the the first thing is that you, you have to, uh, well, Darren Dougherty talks about this. Um, he's Regent Ag. Uh, he talks about the hardest climate to change is the climate of the mind. Mm. And if you if you study if you study what changes paradigms or what makes people want to do something different, um, the 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 largest driver of change is pain. Now that pain can be mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, relational. I mean, there's there's any points of pain. But um, I, I think that I think that if you if you are in pain, uh, and maybe the pain is just you know, your wife wants you to change. Maybe that's mm. enough of a pain. But uh, what I'm suggesting is that if you're hungry for different, we'll just we'll just let it go at that. If you're hungry for different. Then, yes. Then, then you're ready. Then it's 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 all downhill from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 if you're if you're coming, um, you know, most people I'm sure 
today can't identify with the metaphor of, you know, trying to pull a reluctant calf along. If you've got a, a rope on a calf and you're trying to pull it and the calf locks all four legs up, my goodness, a 60-pound calf can make a fool out of a 200-pound guy, let me tell you. And, and, and I think, I think that, that that picture, a lot of farmers can identify that, that calf, as soon as that calf says, you know what, I'll go along with this, man, then everything's possible. You can lead him to the water. You can lead him to the field. You can lead him, you know, to the show ring, whatever. And so the, the, the first thing is to, is to ask yourself, do I want to change? Do I, do I want something different? Do, am, am I coming all locked up or am I actually willing to unlock my knees and, and, and let myself be pulled by new ideas, other thinking? Mm-hmm. Once you're at that point, then start with just one thing. Yes, I'm all in favor of reading, you know, so read differently. Start feeding your mind different information, different material. Yeah, all those kooks and those lunatics that you've heard, yeah, read some of them, okay? Mm. But, but on your farm, in your, op, in your, in your outfit, start with one thing. Uh, don't get stuck in the weeds. Don't, don't, you know, feel like, well, I, I can't do it all, so I can't do anything. No, 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 no. Everything starts with one step and starts with a crawl. A crawl. Pick just one thing and do it well and use it as a prototype. And that one thing can be um, uh, anything, for, I mean, in, in, in for example, uh, to do managed grazing, controlled grazing, Um you know, fence off, don't try to fence off the whole place, fence off one paddock and do it correctly. Bring the cows in, take them out, bring the cows in, take them out and watch the grass growth, watch, watch the vegetation, watch, uh, the carbon, uh, build up. I mean, I mean, and, and, and if you, if you can get positive results on one thing, um, then, that will give you that that will affirm you and give you confidence to take the second step. If you if you say, well, since I can't I can't figure it all out, so I'm not going to start. Well, you'll never start because you know what I haven't got it all figured out. Mm. And, and and so you know, life is a journey; it's not a destination. We all know that. And so, don't treat this like a destination. When when you have questions and you don't know the answers, it's okay. Just do the one thing that you can do, and and the other answers will you know will gradually fall in. I, I I meet so many people that are stuck because they can't see their way to get clear to a destination, and so they just stay stuck. Mm. But if you're stuck, you just have to get out of the mud first. Don't worry about whether you can make it to a filling station. Don't worry about whether you can make it to a hotel. You're never going to get there if you don't get out of the mud. Mm. And 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 so that's my advice. Is and and it's kind of maybe it's generic. It sounds trite, but I I just I just see people again wanting to try to see to to lay out the whole journey, the whole map in front of them, and it's it's intimidating. Yeah, you know, it's it's too much, and you have to just bite off one little one little thing that you think you can do. Um, you know, grow, grow one, one patch of something without chemicals. Um, you know, for cooking, uh, 
do do one thing from scratch. Maybe it's simply breaking eggs and making an omelet. Maybe that's maybe that's the the simplest scratch thing you can do. Uh, instead of you you know using whatever pre-scrambled eggs in a box, mm-hmm. um, but but you know do do something, just one thing, and that will that will give you an affirmation, and you'll find it satisfying, exciting, and you'll be you'll be ready to tackle number two. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, as you were speaking there, I thought about the zero waste movement and a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, I could never put, you know, a month's worth of my waste <laughs> in a tiny jar yeah, yeah. so they don't start. And it's like, well, what that actually looked like for that person is buying your beans and lentils at a, um, a bulk food store to start with or, you know, and then tiny little changes that keep removing yeah. the plastic packaging and um, and it didn't happen overnight that's for sure it's a massive learning journey sure yeah sure there's a, there's enough there for a lifetime yeah there is that exciting oh yeah and um and so <laughs> another reason a lot of people don't start and change and make changes to the way they farm is cuz they're worried they're not going to actually be able to stay in business it's it, again like maybe it's um a fear based um belief but how do you help that person you know through demonstrating what you guys have achieved how um how farming in a regenerative way can actually be a great profitable business well sure and 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 there again um you you bite off baby steps when you're starting and i will tell you that um you know it's important to realize that the bigger the the bigger the operation, the harder it is to turn. It's like mm-hmm. the difference between turning a a speedboat and an aircraft carrier. Yeah. And and the the bigger the boat, the harder it is to turn. So, the smaller the farm, the smaller the organization, the smaller the business, the easier it is to adapt. In business, we call this being nimble. Your ability to be nimble is directly directly related to the amount of infrastructure, bureaucracy, and 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 uh, you know, and, and the size of the operation. So, um, so the thing to do is to to pick one little thing you want to change, but don't think, don't jeopardize the mothership. Uh, don't uh, don't um, don't sacrifice the whole the whole outfit for this experiment. Do little, uh, do little tests, little, little experiments, little tests, um, with a, with a piece of the crop here or a little piece of land over here. And so that if it fails, if it fails, the whole, the whole ship hasn't sunk. And it, you know, um, big, big risks can create big failures. Mm. And so, um, so, this isn't the time. This isn't the time to be heroic. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, like we're going to change everything, and yeah. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. No, 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 no. This is the, the the time to be heroic is someplace else. Mm. Uh, this is the time to be um, uh, courageous but judicious, and don't be don't be silly. Uh, don't be foolish. Do it small. Do everything small. All innovation requires an embryo mm. and if the embryo if the embryo is too big to be birthed then you'll never birth it so break it down small enough that it can be birthed and then you'll be able to see 
what your prototype is, and you won't jeopardize the rest of the business. Yeah. But I can assure you that as a small farm, yes, we do extremely well, and the reason we do extremely well is because we wear all those notorious middleman hats. Mm-hmm. You know, they always say, well, the middleman makes all the money. Um, well, you made yourselves the is, middleman. Yeah. I, I want to I be the middleman. Mm. And one of the one of the biggest uh, issues right now in in commodity farming is that the margins are so low that that you have to be very large scale because the profit margins are so low that you have to be, you have to do a lot of pounds, bushels, widgets, or whatever uh, at such low margins in order to make a living. But if you become the distributor, the processor, the marketer, and you wear all those different hats so you can get the retail dollar, suddenly you can make the same income on a quarter the production, which takes the pressure off of your production. Mm. Production, The, the production is what's subject to... Um, is what subject to the all the vagaries of nature, you know, uh, uh, price, pestilence, weather, disease. You know, it's what every farmer sits on the side of their ute and um, and and whines about. You know, weather, price, pestilence, and disease. Yeah. But if you, but, but if you're if you have a lot of your equity in you know in in uh, in, in a customer base, for example, um, that you're communicating with you know, a newsletter or, or a blog and you're, and you've got whatever stainless steel kitchenware or processing equipment that you're doing, you know, the, the, the grasshoppers don't eat the tires off of your delivery truck. Mm. <laughs> the, the, the hot, the hot day does not destroy your, uh, the, the wires to your internet connection to your mm. customers. And, and so, so the, the weather, price, pestilence, and disease vagaries that are uniquely agriculture-related yeah. um, don't don't affect or afflict these these middleman issues. And so every do- as a farmer, every dollar we can load out of those risky production dollars and load them into these more uh, uh, less risky middleman dollars. By that number of dollars and that percentage, we start to gradually reduce the risk um, or, or the, the, num- the number of our dollars that are subject to these weather, price, pestilence, disease, vagaries of, of farming. Mm. And so from just a, a, an income stability standpoint, it gives us more legs on our stool, more legs on our income stool. Yeah, so good. And um, I guess... To, to touch back on the, the weather, price, pestilence, um, like that basically you're therefore building a resilient business as opposed to a business that relies on so many other things to survive, which is how so well, many yeah, farmers uh, feel. They feel like they live on dead yeah. hooks. Oh, oh a- absolutely. Well, mm. they're price takers and not price makers. And mm. if, the, if the local uh, grain elevator... Um, bobbles a little bit then I mean, they've got they've got one you know one buyer yeah. uh and and that's a that's a terribly precarious place to be in um but if you if you create a brand and you own and and you you uh own a customer um then 
you decentralize, you um, you spread your market over a lot more people. I mean, even in the even in the the, the Great American Depression of nineteen of the nineteen thirties, um, which we had thirty percent unemployment. Everybody concentrates on these. Oh no, you know the sky is falling. Thirty percent unemployment, but realize seventy percent in in the worst period of American history, at least economically, seventy mm. percent of the people never lost their jobs. Yeah. And so if you're if you're direct if if you if you are selling directly to actual people, mm. then um, then you become, as you said, much more resilient because yes. Some may suffer loss, even in an economic downturn, whatever. You know, some may be unemployed, but most of them won't be. Mm. And and you'll be able to continue marketing and, and you know, and, and selling to those folks. And that creates a lot of uh, structure and stability for what is arguably a very, um, you know, fragile business, which is, you know, commodity agriculture and producing it and hope there's somebody out there to buy it mm, yeah absolutely it just uh, you know when you lay it out like that you know it seems smart to start moving parts of one's farm into this new um way yeah. where you build community and you sell direct and you know and as you mm -hmm. said at the start you don't have to do it with your entire production yet that's risky no but just start doing no, a few things right. yeah i love it yeah yeah and to finish, Joel, I'd love to ask you to cast your mind back. You must have been involved in so many regenerative soil rehabilitation programs with various people over the years, helping people um, change, literally change their landscape. Um, uh, and I've seen you present this where you show the terrain before you started in implementing um, the changes and then these ridiculously beautiful lush pastures um, afterwards, can you share a, a story of um, a, a story of this this happening that you've particularly loved being involved in or hearing about yourself? Well, sure. I mean, we we've certainly enjoyed several of these kinds of things on our mm. on our own uh, uh, farm. Um, as a little as a little child, I well remember um, the property when Dad and Mom bought it in 1961. I was just four. But I just remember it being so eroded. We had these deep gullies, just gullies all over the place, and um, and of course they no no vegetation, just bare bare clay, bare soil, and um, and um, as a as a little kid, I can well remember um, Dad had this idea of putting what we kind of call porous dams uh, down in these gullies. We just you know, would gather up some rocks and 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 sticks and just kind of make a make a little uh, uh, twelve to twenty four inch kind of dam across there. It didn't hold water, but it slowed the water. And very very quickly, um, you know, in in a year or two, these became little terraces in the bottoms of these gullies. And and because it was slowing the water down, letting the debris and 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 soil um, slow down enough that it sedimented out above these little porous dams. And um, one of our one of our first apprentices was from Mexico in a very dry area, 
down there in the Sonora, Mexico, they get about, oh, well, inches, uh, you know, maybe four or five inches of rain a year. I mean, we're looking at, wow. what, you know, 50, 50 mil, 50 mil of rain a year mm. and uh, very, very dry desert. And uh, he took this idea home and if the cowboys, they had a, a large ranch. And uh, if the cowboys had a couple hours, he'd, he'd uh, they'd go out there, four or five of them, and just spend an hour you know, just picking up rocks that they could pick up and toss into these little um, spots. We went down to visit him a couple of years later, and it was amazing. Those those little dams, um, I mean, they hadn't done the whole ranch by any means, but each one of those was a little uh, three or four meter terrace up the gully that was just green with vibrant vegetation, Brown all around, no vegetation, but just green, vibrant in those little those little uh, terraces. Mm. So, you know, to me, it's one of those things. It, it's kind of like the, you know, the kid that was walking along the beach and he was picking up uh, crabs and throwing them back in the ocean, and somebody laughed at him and said, "Good grief, all these thousands of crabs! You know, that's foolish to, you know, what difference does it make to, you know, try to pick one up and throw it in?" Mm. They said, "Well, it made a difference to that one." Mm. And it, it's a you know it's it's a great little uh, story to illustrate you know don't get stuck with how big things are, get stuck on what one little thing that you can do, and if all of us it's kind of like the Chinese proverb if everybody if all of us would sweep and sweep in front of our own homes the whole world would be clean mm. and I think there's a lot of a lot of profound truth in that there is a um, lot promises yeah. yeah. The, uh, one other one, uh, quickly that, that we did, it was dad's first, uh, idea was this, was this idea of a portable, uh, cow shade mobile. And we started moving the cows around, you know, doing this controlled grazing thing. And well, we didn't have enough trees for all of them to have shade in all, on all the paddocks. And so dad built this large, uh, it was about a 10 meter by 16 meter, um, uh, portable shelter thing. And we moved it around, and um, and the cows would shade up under it on a hot day. And not only were they more comfortable, but it 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 just made um, early on when the farm when, when the farm wasn't very fertile yet. It's very fertile now, so we don't we don't see the, the dramatic changes. But in those early days, it just you could just um, it just looked like you'd, you'd put a rectangular paintbrush on the on the field and those green those green rectangles um, had a residual of five years out that, that they would stay real lush green and um, you know people thought we were crazy there certainly wasn't another one in that we knew about even in the country and um, and we still have it we've built more of them since and we just think the portable you know shade mobile for the animals is just uh, a dynamite, not only for their comfort, but for, but as a, as a, as a fertility driver to be able to, to just that, yeah, I mean, we go up on a rock pile, a bunch of briars or brambles, and we can park that shade mobile, and in one, in one day of shading up under it, they tromp out all the junk, they put down all their dung and urine, and in, in one year, it's converted from, you know, a, a, a terrible spot to an oasis. It's it's really really dramatic. Wow. 
It's all about the shade. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. throwing shade has yeah, a new and, meaning. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and yeah, and you know, strategic placement of the of the pasture droppings. Yeah, amazing. Um, Joel, I feel like I could literally talk to you for another three hours, but uh, in the interest of everybody's time involved in this beautiful conversation, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me for the Low Tox podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to, uh, to hear tales and wisdom, um, as always from you. And I, I really know that everyone's going to appreciate it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.